Man of Steel Answers Insight Commentary Episode 67 Doomsday Part 1 I have so many questions. Then of course there's the question on everyone's mind. Then I'll ask the obvious question. Start asking questions. You're the answer, son. Welcome to Mosaic. I'm Doc and I cover a mosaic of topics for fans who love the Man of Steel and look forwards to the future while learning from the past. This episode breaks down fighting Doomsday from the perspective of our heroes to combat some common complaints and criticisms. This show dives deep into DC Films for answers and insights as we celebrate the films that give us so much. Reasonable minds will differ, but this is a show for fans who love DC films and who love to chew their food. Alright, welcome back. So, this is a reworked version of an unaired episode from February 2017. It's a classic apologetics episode addressing a lot of alternatives to taking on Doomsday proposed by critics. I think we can use it to illustrate some things that we've talked about already, like theory of mind, taking logical abstractions too far and into the absurd, and dealing with uncertainty. As we discussed in our first contact episode, theory of mind is the ability to accurately attribute mental states to oneself and others, and to understand that others have beliefs, desires, intentions, and perspectives that are different from one's own. Cognitive theory of mind refers to different facts and information. You can call it knowledge. Affective theory of mind is made up of feelings and emotions, or empathy. An inability to separate or distinguish our knowledge and emotions from those of others lowers our theory of mind, and such deficits can be found in those with disorders or addictions. Link in the show notes. And it's often the case that critics of these scenes, or the questions surrounding them, result from a failure to exercise their theory of mind, or from a person suffering from a low theory of mind. They can't seem to separate their knowledge, beliefs, baggage, and assumptions from what the characters would know or their own feelings from what the characters would feel. To compound the issue, not only can they not imagine another perspective, but that their own view of their own view is absolute, that they are right, and that there is no gray in how anyone else could feel. If you exercise theory of mind, you should be able to understand and acknowledge the other's viewpoint, even if you don't share it, adopt it, or agree with it. It can still be deemed a reasonable choice, and thus reasonable minds differ. So even if it isn't what you would do, it would still be something a reasonable person would do without immediately being denigrated as daft, foolish, or wrong. Every episode contains the disclaimer reasonable minds will differ, which means that two reasonable people looking at the same set of facts can still come to two different conclusions, and that a difference in opinion doesn't necessarily indicate an absence or deficiency in reason. Two differing views about the same facts and situation can both be reasonable. In polarizing times with polarizing views, it can be hard to accept a differing mind as a reasonable one, and to believe that any deviation must be unreasonable. 
Well, I hope despite picking one or the other, you recognize that there is not necessarily a right answer to these questions, even if we're incredibly adept at rationalizing our answers to ourselves. (laughs) One of the reasons to be skeptical of quote-unquote fun as a metric is how subjective it is. We're out here because camping is fun. Hiking, making s'mores, campfires, mosquito bites, wild animal attacks, the body odors. Can we go home? No, you are having too much fun. (laughs) (laughs) Fun is a self-defining tautology. Fun to the people who find it fun. Be it roller coasters or Russian literature, scary movies or fragging newbies, board games or body piercing, Fun, in and of itself, seems an insufficient explanation to help detractors and adherents understand one another. However, we can increase our ability to understand others if we take the time to consciously exercise our theory of mind with others. Now on logical abstraction. The problem is that the oversimplification of an issue is often driven by agenda and intended to portray the opposition as absurd. In online argument, you'll see this trend, and it's this tendency from which Godwin's Law emerges. The seemingly inevitable comparison to some symbol of absolute evil, because abstraction is so seductive, easy, and by now, second nature. For your consideration, the following clip criticizes abstraction in thought experiments. What's the best way to do practical ethics? What's the best way to work out how we should behave morally in different scenarios? Some philosophers like to start by developing principles, often through the use of imaginary examples called thought experiments. James Wilson, who teaches at University College London, believes this gets things the wrong way round. James Wilson, the topic we're going to focus on is real-world ethics. Now, obviously, all ethics in some sense is in the real world, but what do you mean by real-world ethics? I mean helping us to make wise decisions about real-life situations. Very often, philosophers can talk about thought experiments or in very abstract terms, but the real world is actually much more complicated than the world that philosophers often like to think about. just wish it was more simple. My baby boy, nothing was ever simple. So a classic example of a thought experiment is the trolley problem with the runaway train going towards five people on the tracks and you could deflect it by putting a lever up to kill one person instead should you do it. That's very, very much a simplified situation. It's almost like a diagram in most examples. How is a real-world problem different from that? A real-world problem is different in all kinds of ways from a thought experiment. The first way, perhaps most obviously, is all real-world problems arise in a context and within a certain history. Think about the way that the thought experiment is set up. You're just told that this trolley is hurtling down towards five people and you're at the points. You don't understand anything about why it was that the trolley is hurtling towards that. When we never discover anything about what will happen to the five people who get saved afterwards. Whereas real-world problems are massively more complicated than that. Think, for example, if you're trying to provide ethical advice on somebody trying to solve a problem like the Arab-Israeli conflict in the Middle East. It's a problem that goes back a hundred or more years. And there's such a sort of history of recrimination on both sides that you couldn't begin to think that through in ethical terms without understanding the history. As I understand it, one of the values of simplified thought experiments is that you can establish general principles which you might then apply to more complex situations. Indeed, that's the theory that philosophers give us. In some cases, there may be something to that. James Rachels has a classic thought experiment involving two people, Smith and Jones, and he's interested, is there really a difference between actively killing somebody and letting them die? And so he sets up two precisely matched cases where the only difference is that in one case there's a killing in another case, letting die. I won't kill you, but I don't have to save you. 
And most people think that, okay, yes, in that particular scenario you've constructed, there doesn't seem to be a moral difference between killing and letting die. But the question is, what follows from that? Does it follow that there's never a difference between killing and letting die? I think that's too hasty a thing to draw, and that very often context matters, and there can be other principles which interact in complicated ways. And so that there's often a very deep set of questions, an important set of questions that we need to think about as philosophers, about well, how do you go from the simple case where things are clear to the real world case? More from Wilson later. So for a bit of a roadmap for these episodes, here are some of the questions we're going to confront. Why didn't the Trinity use Lex to stop Doomsday? Why doesn't Doomsday have a ding-dong? <laughs> Why did Superman take Doomsday into space? Why did Superman ensure that they get hit by the nuke? Why didn't Superman do something different? Why did Batman take Doomsday back to Gotham? And why didn't Wonder Woman kill Doomsday with the spear? And of course, much, much more coulda, woulda, shouldas that the critics raise. The fight with Doomsday has a lot of beats, so I'm going to refresh your memory using the descriptive video service track for the visually impaired. It's the closest thing to a novelization for the film, and it's amazing how it can keep up with most of the Doomsday fight. There are a few beats that are too fast for the original DVS track, so I've put a transcribed list of the action in the show notes for reference, or you can use this as an excuse to pop in BVS and rewatch it again. Go ahead, I won't mind. <laughs> Doomsday's breath whips through Lex's hair. The madman's creation throws a punch at him, but Superman intercepts and catches his massive fist. So let's start there and with Lex. If you take time to listen to the DVS track, you'll note it tries to inject as little subjectivity into its commentary as possible, allowing the listener to form their own impressions and interpretations. And yet here, they bother to editorialize a little about Lex and call him explicitly a madman. He has, as even the actor portraying him says, become unhinged. What was Lex thinking when he created Doomsday? I think Lex becomes increasingly unhinged throughout the movie, and I think, yeah, his final act was this kind of like a last-ditch effort to kind of throw it all, like leave it all on the table. Lex fears more than anything kind of losing control, so much so that Lex kind of puts himself in front of Superman and, uh, you know, almost asks Superman to tear him apart because Lex has no feeling for his own life. Madman, unhinged, last-ditch suicide by Superman scheme is not how we would describe somebody with a coldly calculated plan, contingencies, or ambitions beyond Doomsday. There are those that allege that the idea was that Doomsday would obey and be his to control, that Lex could have aborted Doomsday once the outcome of Fight Night was known, or that Lex had in place plans to take down or take out Doomsday, swoop in as the hero and claim all the subsequent acclaim afterwards as humanity's savior. And that's an interesting series of assumptions that seems to be contradicted by the facts. Neither the narrator, nor the actor, nor the script says Lex is anything but unhinged and desperate at the end. And we've discussed this from Lex's perspective in the past. There's nothing in principle to justify the presumption of obedience. Earthly sons fail to follow their fathers. The of science fiction in our culture comes from Frankenstein, another creation refusing to follow their creator. Lex knows and quotes mythology, and the failure to 
follow the father in Icarus, for the creation to follow Zeus, or for Zeus to punish his predecessor, the Titan Prometheus. There is nothing in all his knowledge that would lead to him believing that human blood binds one to obedience. Well, what of Krypton? What of the thousands of worlds with all their knowledge and ways? While we can dismiss Krypton as having any ability to completely command obedience, the curse of Bertrand is precisely because you can't control Doomsday. It wouldn't be a curse if the ancient deformity could be completely controlled and carefully deployed exactly as you wish. The Kryptonians were masters of eugenics and programming, and yet, at the end, their society still suffered from needing prison ships like the Black Zero, rebel scientists who gave birth in secret and act to steal the codex, and their highest military officer stages a coup. This is a society that has fallen well short of successfully sealing away all rebellion through biology. Finally, we can forget about the other worlds because we know that Darkseid is out there and still seeks the anti-life equation. If there already existed a way to completely ensure obedience and control, the elimination of free will, then Darkseid would have subjugated the universe already. So there's little basis for Lex to believe that he could control Doomsday. And even if we hand wave it as possible, a magic switch that says Doomsday would obey? There's nothing that allows for the actual logistics of that. Your blood can't convey all your wishes and your wants. Your words require clarity and that they be understood. But that requires proximity in time and space, and Lex did nothing to ensure either of those things. Imagine the activation and command of Doomsday like the magic word Shazam. Well, Lex did nothing to ensure himself an opportunity to actually command Doomsday and say the magic words. The way Lex timed things out, there's absolutely nothing stopping Superman from simply silencing him, metaphorically or literally covering his mouth, preventing any intelligible instructions be given. And the instant that Doomsday is out of range or shows a complete inability to comprehend anything, what good are commands? And so we can turn to our first criticism of BVS, which in this case actually tends to come from fans of the film rather than detractors who dislike it. So in a behind-the-scenes clip, we get an omission that theorists hang their hat on, where Jesse, perhaps improvising, says, Obeys only me. And from these three words spring a whole font of fanfiction on Lex's intentions. Again, we've already addressed this in episode 50 from Lex's perspective, why this was a properly excluded line, how it's nonsensical from the start as a motivation, but in this episode, we can spin it around to show how it completely fails from the perspective of our heroes. Because in that take, cut from all versions of the film, be it theatrical or what the filmmakers decided to dub ultimate, the best and final rendition of their intentions, Lex says that line in front of Superman. And people who cling to the theory of control haven't thought through the effects of those words on him. Aside from the faulty premise, leaving the line in creates a fault line in the logic of the rest of the film. If Lex just announced his ability and intention to control Doomsday, why would Superman ignore that and leave it alone? So Lex control theorists might say that Doomsday's punch proved that Lex couldn't control Doomsday. And that's quite reasonable, except that it was just one punch. What if that was just an exception? What if Lex's control needed time to kick in? or would work after a few tries, or could be fixed to function properly. 
If you need a visual analogy, you might look at the recent Godzilla release, where mankind's ability to affect the Titans isn't a binary on-off switch, but something that had to be iterated, refined, could be interfered with, etc. When it becomes clear that Doomsday outclasses Superman's strength, how does it make more sense to try and punch the stronger Doomsday into submission, where the villain has told you he can cause the devil to submit, presumably without needing superpowers? <laughs> At the very least, Lex could provide insight into how to stop Doomsday, more than just using your own body as an experiment. I mean, we've all seen this scene in fiction, so familiar that even children's cartoons levy this logic. In The Legend of Korra, that's it. Batar Jr. built it. He'll know how to take it down. I say we capture him and get him to talk. In Steven Universe. We have to find a way to move it before it's too late. Spinel! She activated it, so she must be able to deactivate it. And even in superhero fare such as Spider-Man 2, Peter pleads with Otto. Dr. Octavius, we have to shut it down. Please tell me how. And this isn't just a matter of a commonplace trope repeated without reason. It actually makes sense that the villain who creates the monster or disaster may have insight into how to stop it. If you subscribe to the theory that Lex had plans to control or contingencies to stop or a way to swoop in and be the hero at the end, you're saying that Superman, Batman, and Lois were all too dumb to realize that basic idea. That they all thought it was a better idea to fight a 24-foot tall monster with a spear, a glowing rock on a stick, than to try to get Lex to do whatever he had allegedly planned to do to stop the monster on his own. Lex is not a metahuman. Whatever his alleged plan would have been, like the Tower of Babel protocols from Batman lore, they would be plans that anyone could employ to stop Doomsday. If it was the film's intention to tell you that Lex had kryptonite in reserve and the ability to command Doomsday or some way of stopping Doomsday, well, then that's a contradictory mixed message that the audience is supposed to assemble, but that our heroes completely miss, to the point that a spear makes more sense than shaking down Lex. Instead, I think it's obvious what my position is, that this interpretation is a mistake and that there is no error by the heroes in writing off Lex as the answer to Doomsday. I think something misunderstood by Lex control theorists is Lex's level of criminal liability and exposure. They think that he can take things back, talk his way out, and escape responsibility for Doomsday, not realizing that he has already sealed his own legal fate far earlier in the story. You can go back to episode 50 and look at how it's clear that he's going to be caught for doomsday. And I mean, that's exactly how law enforcement come to arrest him. Their laser sights show us that Lex is perceived as a threat that may need to be taken down. They're not here to rescue a hostage. They're here to secure a known criminal. Reinforced by the film, cutting directly to Lex in chains, in custody, and having his head shaved. A direct line between institutional arrest and guilt, without ambiguity, twists, or turns. They knew he was wrong when they came to get him. So why is it so clear to them, but missed by Lex control theorists? I think they might be too focused on Doomsday. But Lex put into action many other illegal acts that he wasn't going to be able to recover from even before Doomsday starts to destroy Metropolis. There are acts that are evident or will be evident to outside others like Superman, Batman, Lois, and law enforcement, and that's why he's branded the bad guy even before any trial or evidence. And these self-destructive tendencies eliminate him as a viable option to leverage against Doomsday. 
which is why they don't bother to ask or try to compel anything from him. So our heroes might not know or be able to deduce this, but we can. Lex has crossed the point of no return the moment he desecrates Zod's corpse with his own blood. At that point, he knows and accepts he's committed a crime for which he will be caught, period. It doesn't matter if Doomsday is never born, doesn't rampage, and the lightning doesn't shoot from the ship. Lex has just irrevocably contaminated, corrupted, and transmuted precious government property. No, what you can't do is break the law and steal federal property. We know how seriously the federal government takes Moonrock samples. One way to illustrate that is with the story of Thad Roberts. Here, Ben Mesrich, author of The Social Network, summarizes the story. Thad Roberts basically came from a very hard background. He um, was kicked out of his house when he was 18. And then uh, he decided he wanted to be an astronaut. And he changed his whole life and kind of became James Bond. And he majored in geology and physics and astronomy at University of Utah. And he learned how to fly airplanes and scuba dive and spoke five languages. And then he got into NASA's Johnson Space Center. It's a co-op program, so it's for college kids. But it's really a feeder to the astronaut training program. So he was achieving his dream. He was a standout there. He was a big star. He became the social leader of all the co-ops and the interns. And then he fell in love with a young intern. And, you know, we've all done something stupid out of love. Well, what Thad Roberts did is he stole a 600-pound safe full of moon rocks from his professor's office and, as I said, spread them on a bed, had sex with his girlfriend, and then tried to sell them over the Internet to a Belgium gem dealer. And he is this big believer in right and wrong, so he immediately called the FBI. He emailed the FBI in Tampa, and it became this big sting operation. And Thad Roberts was taken down. And here's Thad himself after serving his sentence. I had worked so hard to get there on the hope that I was going to get there. And then when I got accepted, it's now, whew, I got to keep this up. So it's it kind of stressful to figure out how am I going to do this? How am I going to outperform? How am I going to learn as much as possible and take advantage of all this without the kind of money that everyone else has? But it would take a lot more than luck for him to pull off the biggest heist in the history of NASA. Thad Roberts is the most complicated person I've ever written about. Really? He's an incredibly complex character. And I've written about Mark Zuckerberg. Author Ben Meserich has penned books about the MIT whiz kids who almost brought down the house in Vegas and about Facebook founder Mark Zuckerberg. Thad Roberts was an even more irresistible subject. And I've always been writing about these genius kids who live in that gray area between right and wrong. Right. And here's this kid who basically does a hundred yard sprint through that gray area right into the black area. And I don't know why. And I think that kind of blew me away. That race to the dark side started when Robert saw some moon rocks in the laboratory safe of NASA scientist Everett Gibson. Moon rocks he would eventually steal. NASA has 842 pounds of moon rocks, Apollo's total lunar haul. A small percent, including the samples that were in Dr. Gibson's safe, have been exposed to the Earth's atmosphere. Still, they'd be invaluable to any collector. Um, so when he gets to NASA and he sees all these moon rocks in a safe that aren't being used, they're the most valuable thing on Earth, and NASA is just putting them in a corner, he feels that the right thing to do is to take these out of NASA, to take these moon rocks, and use them. So with the assistance of two younger female interns, Roberts, on a rainy Saturday night, snuck into Everett Gibson's lab. When he couldn't crack the 600-pound safe, 
He simply loaded it onto a dolly and wheeled it out. Inside were samples from every lunar landing and a Martian meteorite, a total of just 101 grams, but valued by federal officials at $21 million. Why did you do it? <sighs> I mean, the simple answer is to say that I did it for love. I did it because I wanted to be loved. I wanted someone to know that I literally cared about them that much and to have a, the symbol there to remind them of it. One of his accomplices that night was 22-year-old Tiffany Fowler. Roberts, still married to a woman back in Utah, fell hard for Fowler and wanted to, yes, give her the moon. In my own head, stealing something wasn't the way I looked at it. We weren't going to take this money we we're getting from it to go buy a yacht or lots of cars or a big house. We were going to live just a small kind of lifestyle we were, but fun science that might change the world, you know? On July 20th, 2002, the 33rd anniversary of the first moonwalk, Thad and Tiffany arrived in Orlando, where they expected to sell their loot. And just an hour before the sale, alone in their hotel room, they celebrated their crime. I take some of the moon rocks and I put them underneath the blanket on, in the bed. You have sex on the moon rocks? Yeah. And no one had ever before had sex on the moon? Yeah, I think we can safely say that. While it's easy to make Thad's story entertaining, and incidentally the book has been optioned for a future film, a darker story shows how seriously the government takes the security of its scientific samples. In 2011, six federal agents arrested and detained a 75-year-old woman, Joanne Davis, the widow of a NASA engineer, for attempting to sell a moon sample smaller than a grain of rice. She was interrogated and held for hours, degraded and humiliated as she sat in a pool of her own urine. And if you delve deeper into the story of Davis, I promise you that she is far more sympathetic than Lex could ever be. The circuit court questioned if such measures were needed to apprehend Mrs. Davis. Counsel, help me on something. There were a few things that the agents knew. One was that the woman called NASA to assist her. There are inferences that can be drawn from that. An important inference is that she was not keeping her moon rock that her husband had given her secret from the government. So she obviously did not have a consciousness that she was committing a crime. It also was probably evident just from her voice that she was an old lady. You wouldn't know that she was in her 70s, I think it was, and five feet tall, but you'd know she was an old lady. Why would you need six police and restraints going into a discussion with an old lady like that who is seeking government assistance in selling her moon rock? The point is that if the government took her case this seriously, no one is going to let Lex go on this. So let's get a sense of scale on valuation. In the case of Thad Roberts, the samples he stole were valued at $51,000 a gram, based on the cost that taxpayers had paid in 1973 dollars to collect the specimens during the Apollo lunar missions. In today's money, that would be nearly $300,000 a gram. And that is an extremely conservative underestimate in the defendant's favor. Out on the free market, moon rocks fetch magnitudes more money. In November 2018, 200 milligrams of the moon retrieved by the unmanned Russian Luna 16 mission sold at auction for $855,000. What's so exciting about these is they are the only documented lunar samples that can legally be owned by a private person. The uh, samples 
collected by the Americans all belong to the United States. They have gifted rocks to governments, but never to an individual. That'll run you $4.3 million a gram. And this is all for samples largely composed of minerals and materials that we already completely comprehend, already exposed to Earth's atmosphere, and where we still have nearly half a ton of material to study. As precious as these moon rocks are, by comparison, Zod's body is beyond priceless. The government gave Lex access to their only biological sample of extraterrestrial life. Moreover, a direct analog to the Superman, an ever-present existential security concern as proven by Suicide Squad. The data from Zod's body not only tells you about life in the universe and life generally, but is a direct source of scientific inquiry into the most powerful being on the planet. Simply studying the effect of eugenics on Zod is one thing, but the invulnerability, immortality, and solar powers completely rewrite our scientific understanding of physics, biology, fields, and more. And once you corrupt that with terrestrial human DNA, you lose the ability to contrast the alien. You don't know whether your sample says something about life out there in space or here on Earth. You lose the ability to directly study the Superman, etc. In order to gauge Lex's criminal liability, even if we severely undervalue Zod as the equivalent of moon rocks at $50,000 a gram instead of $4 million, Lex's corruption of that government property would still be a conversion crime or theft over $5.2 billion dollars. And unsurprisingly, this is off the charts of the federal sentencing guidelines, which, to my surprise, actually go all the way up to half a billion dollars in damages. Once convicted, the level of offense puts his sentence around 22 years, assuming no other crimes, priors, or aggravating factors. In combination with his other crimes, it ought to be obvious that he does life in prison, even excluding capital punishment for the bombing of Congress. Again, to give you a sense of scale, remember that the 25-year-old Thad Roberts didn't actually harm anyone, committed no acts of violence, he was cooperative when caught, all the property was returned, and he pled out with no priors on his record. And yet, in his case, he was still sentenced to eight years of federal prison. Even before Lex commences metamorphosis, he has met all the elements of theft. Even if it were magically possible to recover the original, he's already committed and can be convicted of the crime. And even if the punishment were only eight years, Lex is still committing to a course of action that will turn him into a felon for the rest of his life. He is going to be caught. His actions will be known and shown. Destin, from Smarter Every Day, goes into the NASA vault to see how most of the moon samples are kept. And so we join him after many layers of security and extensive clean room procedures. So what are we doing now? We're in our pristine sample lab. Okay. And so there were six missions that went to the moon from 1969 to 1972, bringing back 842 pounds of rocks, which is 382 kilograms, in these nitrogen-filled cabinets, a very pure type nitrogen gas. This is a neoprene glove that we use, and we cannot touch the sample with these gloves if they're unbagged. But the samples that I'm going to show you are actually bagged. This is the Apollo 17 sample, the sample number 76315,89. So you know that this sample has been broken at least into 89 pieces. That's how they're indexed. This is how they, yes, and this is how they're packaged. 
for storage. Do you only touch the moon rocks with tools that you're holding with gloves, right? If the moon rocks are open, then we only touch them with Teflon aluminum or stainless steel. So there would be tweezers or Teflon gloves. And this is a pair of gloves Teflon. over your gloves? Gloves over the gloves. Wow. Exactly. That's so amazing. We, you're controlling the materials that actually touch the moon rock. So exactly. you said Teflon, stainless stainless steel. So even if they see that material on the sample when they're analyzing it, they can just subtract it out because they know that that's what you're manipulating it with. It makes sense. When you walk into this room and you know that it contains some of the most precious material on earth, it's an absolutely surreal experience. This is it? This is a pristine sample vault. And all the samples are actually still stored in nitrogen cabinets, also by mission. Each one of them have a security seal on there, which means that we have inventoried every sample in those cabinets. And we know our database has every sample, every container number, every sample weight, and sample description in there for everything that's in it. Wow, that's crazy. So do you have a, a, a photographic index of all these? Yes, we do. You do? Yes. Wow. And so that's how you go through and select what you want. You know the, exactly. the composition? Yes. We have a description of everything. All the rocks were described. This is an open tray because there's no seal on it. I see. The team explained to me how they got their tools into the glove box without contaminating the samples. Everything that enters the presence of the moon rocks has to be cleaned via a special procedure. Think about it tools, nameplates, bags. If any of these items are dirty, they can become a source of contamination. If it goes into that cabinet with the rocks, it better be clean. Every tool, every nameplate, everything that's used to process the rocks is cleaned to an insane specification and then it's triple bagged. These bags are then removed in succession as the tools get closer and closer to the moon rocks to avoid contamination at every step. For example, here you can see me putting on a second set of gloves just to touch the second bag before placing this chipping bowl into the airlock. So two big takeaways are the degree to which everything is carefully logged, recorded, and accounted for. There is simply no way that Lex can turn Zod's body into a 24-foot-tall monster and say that he didn't do it. And second, the intense interest in avoiding contamination at all costs. And remember that this is all regarding rocks basically composed of ubiquitous minerals, yet with this level of care. By comparison, Lex is bleeding all over and then irreparably altering and contaminating Zod's body, which would be a criminal violation of the scientific protocol and federal law. Now you could argue that the protocols with Zod's body are too relaxed, but there are three in-story reasons to explain this. The first is that Zod's body has already been exposed to Earth atmosphere and contaminants, so there is no pre-Earth state to preserve. The second is that these solar-exposed or powered Kryptonians seem to be essentially invulnerable, so their cells don't decay or bio-interact. This makes them immutable to the elements. Note that the moon rocks aren't kept only in contact with vacuum and nothingness, they're stored in nitrogen or manipulated with Teflon. Because the issue isn't interaction with the samples, but if the interaction causes reaction. Neither nitrogen nor Teflon will react and can be easily eliminated from any analysis. Likewise, if nothing reacts with Kryptonian cells, this means you have less worry about contamination because anything you try to add is likely easily eliminated terrestrial material. While the Kryptonian cells seem to survive anything you subject them to short of kryptonite. And that leads to the third reason. Zod's body is being treated as one cohesive thing, not by choice or desire, but because they have no 
no way to break off or separate the samples for study until or without Lex's kryptonite. Even NASA tries not to keep all its eggs in one basket. That's crazy. So why don't we have it in multiple locations? Like why aren't, why aren't half of them in a mountain in Colorado? There is another remote facility that we have just in case Johnson Space Center was destroyed. We have 15% uh, of the samples stored in a remote location for storage. Somewhere else is all you're going to tell me. Got it. That's all. It's called remote. <laughs> Thank you. So that's the protocol for precious scientific samples, but they can't follow it until kryptonite enters the picture. This is another reason that Lex may have been given special access. With kryptonite's ability to biointeract, to degrade and therefore cut and sample kryptonian cells, they can now actually begin to follow their protocols and study this precious thing properly. Now note that the government would have a strong eminent domain argument to take Lex's kryptonite as their own in order to continue their studies. After all, in the broadest terms, the government can take, quote, not only in cases of extreme necessity, but for ends of the public utility, end quote. And this is not limited to real property or real estate. It can, does, and has included personal property or even intellectual property like patents. And some other time we can talk about the entanglements around the scout ship. Ooh, don't mind if I do. Possession is nine-tenths of the law, after all. But that doesn't mean that Lex just has to forfeit the kryptonite without a fight, or that he doesn't have any leverage as the finder. His access makes a lot of sense in the larger scheme of things. It's not unreasonable to avoid an intractable legal battle with one of the world's richest men to instead engage one of the world's most brilliant minds in mutually desired research. Granting Lex access with his kryptonite means Zod starts getting broken down and studied now, instead of years later after a long protracted legal fight, especially since resting away Lex's kryptonite incentivizes everyone to conveniently fail to disclose any additional kryptonite found. Not everything in law is as adversarial as it can be, and instead most things end up negotiated. But again, we can contrast the sanctioned activity Lex leveraged versus his clearly unsanctioned high crime. We know what sanctioned activity looks like from Lex's receipt of Zod's body. Political pull, his assistant with a military escort, a shiny steel and sealed container, armed guards at the door, and a cutting-edge facility to perform his permitted cut in a cold clinical surgical lab. But by comparison, Lex's desecration of Zod's corpse is obvious rebellion, not just to the laws of man, but of Krypton. Alexander Luther, your security override has been accepted. Advising, action forbidden. It has been decreed by the Council of Krypton that none will ever again give life to a deformity so hateful to sight and memory, the desecration without name. When Lex decides to irreversibly alter Zod's body, Lex is alone. No assistant, no escort, no guards. He has to heave with effort to move the body. Gone is the precious protection of a metal coffin, replaced by the most mundane black body bag, instead of a sterile scientific procedure, a delicate surgical slice. Lex cuts open his hand in a way that is primal and ill-advised, much more the markings of a religious ritual than the scientific supplement of his own genetic sample. The blood smeared over Zod's face is more symbolic than scientifically required. And Lex understands that the significance of this isn't scientific or rational, but spiritual. 
He practically says a short prayer, sheds tears, and understands that he's shed his life as a law-abiding citizen and will be, henceforth, the villain. You destroy the scientific value of the government's moon rocks and you'll pay. Lex can't say that it wasn't him. We've seen the procedure for getting access to the scout ship. You show your papers and the armed guards let you in. We've been shown this with Lex and the League. There is no question where he was when Zod's body goes missing and begins its metamorphosis. And let's just say Lex did want to be the one to defeat Doomsday. Does he think they aren't going to study what they recover afterwards? What is he going to say when they sequence Doomsday and find Lex's DNA? At Project Cadmus, Luther bred and enslaved living weapons, including me. I am the Superboy, a genomorph, a clone made from the combined DNA of Superman and Lex Luthor. I was created to replace Superman should he perish, to destroy him should he turn from the light, Lex Luthor's life. I've come to think of Superboy as my brother. You can trust him. You don't have to trust me. Test my DNA. It's all the proof you'll need. They're gonna find human DNA among the alien. And when they do, they'll have probable cause to check it against the DNA of all the humans who had access to Zod's body. He's going to get caught. No, it's obvious that Lex wasn't intending to get away with it. Another example is the lightning show from the ship. Remember that this starts well before Doomsday is done. And even if Lex aborts his plan and Doomsday never rampages forth, he's already committed a crime for which he'll be caught. Obviously, the lightning show draws attention to the ship. This is communicated to us by the film over and over. CNN's own Brooke Baldwin is on the scene. Brooke, you're live on the air. What are you seeing? There's something happening at the ship. It's sending massive power surges. But even apart from the attention, the secondary effects are enough to land Lex in prison on their own. The public disturbance, chaos, and disorder, sure, but also the alteration and disruption of a metropolitan power grid is a serious offense. The film makes it clear that the ship is affecting the city's power. Back online, but as of right now, much of the city remains in the dark tonight. Much chaos, much confusion happening on the streets of Metropolis tonight. We get headlines, news tickers, crawlers reinforcing the message. Metropolis is in the dark. Power surges from the ship. And breaking news, Metropolis goes dark. In an approach as grounded in reality as this, know that causing power outages is a punishable crime, often linked to or with terrorism. We're getting reports there are total blackouts in the north and to the northwest of the city. Federal authorities trying to determine if this is part of a larger terrorist attack. This is a real-world phenomenon that requires real-world assurances. Here's Mayor de Blasio making sure that the press knows that a recent series of power outages was not an attack or terrorism. Is This was not a cyber attack, and this was not an act of physical terrorism. The federal government could join the investigation into what caused a massive power outage in New York City. The outage caused major disruption. What do we know about what caused it? Look, we know that everyone in New York is still talking about what happened. We don't know the cause, but the city says they know it wasn't terrorism and it wasn't a cyber attack. Causing power grid disruption is a story and a crime. 
I think some people forget, or would like to forget, that Lois chasing down a blackout is what causes Lex's downfall in Superman Returns. This mysterious electromagnetic pulse knocked out an entire power grid, causing a catastrophic event during the highly touted... Lois, the story isn't the blackout! Lois, I don't understand what you're doing sneaking around covering this blackout. Uh, it wasn't just a blackout, Chief. Lois, Superman. What about the blackout? Kent, blackout. Even if Doomsday doesn't finish baking and Lex takes it back, it doesn't undo Lex causing the criminal blackouts. He's already logged onto the ship. He's on record as entering. He'll be the most obvious cause and take the consequences to boot. And this is how law enforcement know there's nothing good in the ship. It's not like Lex even attempts to resist or feign innocence as he sits in a pool of blood communing with a demon. Lex didn't have an endgame after Doomsday. But to get back to our criticism, the issue is whether the Trinity could have deduced this too. And the answer is obviously yes. As we've said, if Lex left any doubt about his intentions to survive and thrive afterwards, it would have been the first plan to hear heroes should have followed. If Lex's actions were more rational, then it would have made sense to go to Lex and get him to undo Doomsday. But Lex did even more to show that he would be no help in that regard. Superman specifically would have been especially sensitive to the idea of using leverage to gain control over a greater power, having just experienced it at the hands of Lex by way of Martha and Lois. If he actually thought that Lex could contribute anything towards stopping Doomsday, he was primed to think that way. In a cliché film, the hero shakes the mad scientist by the collar and demands that he tell him how to stop what he's unleashed. If you say that Lex had a way to stop or control Doomsday, you're saying that the Trinity didn't use or at least try the most obvious means of stopping Doomsday at their disposal. This is what you do if Lex signaled any intention of control or contingency. He knows the monster better than anyone. He planned for this all along, so surely he must have some insight into stopping it. Except that's not what the film shows us, not what the heroes conclude, and why they default to defeating Doomsday themselves. Lex has already given up on all hope of not getting caught, in that he had directly confronted and confessed to Clark. He personally committed crimes against Lois. Remember that this is in a reality before the birth of the superhero. There is no certainty surrounding secret identities as sacrosanct. Moreover, the whole point of a secret identity is safety, so it doesn't necessarily make sense to subject yourself to the danger of Lex for the sake of the secret. Lex can't guarantee that Superman won't be willing to sacrifice his secret in order to secure Lex's conviction, with whatever safety that may mean. In fact, the very nature of what Lex is trying to compel Superman to do arguably damns himself. If Lex successfully forces Superman to be above the law and kill, what exactly is stopping Superman from turning around and executing him to get out from under his thumb? It seems obvious that Lex doesn't care at this point, which is why he's willing to break the bad news of Martha's death to Superman's face with nothing to save him from Superman's wrath. No Kryptonian sentry drones, no kryptonite in reserve, and Doomsday isn't even done baking yet. And once Doomsday's fist nearly turns Lex into paste, it is crystal clear that Lex doesn't have control and didn't have a plan. You could completely disclaim him as having any understanding of the monster at that point. There would be no point in trying to apply pressure to Lex to interrogate him for answers, to try to get him to explain or use his alleged plan to stop Doomsday, because it's 
evident both from the film and to our heroes that Lex lacks all of that. He would have been just as happy to die at Doomsday's hands as to see it run amok. And that nihilism is more thematically consistent with Batman's parallel perspective than someone who looks upon the Superman situation as an optimistic opportunity and with hope. So Superman doesn't look at Lex as the key to Doomsday, and so he inquires into the spear. Lois, a well-regarded reporter, and having been personally kidnapped and thrown off a building by Lex, knows that Lex isn't trying to get away with it, and that Lex isn't a source of control or intel on Doomsday, and so she also seeks the spear. And Batman, already privy to all of Lex's research, but more importantly, privy to the same nihilistic, self-destructive, suicidal mindset bent on beating Superman also knows that there's nothing to be gained or gleaned from Lex, and so he too concludes that the spear is the solution, not stringing Lex upside down from the edge of a roof. This is what the film shows and communicates, not some secret agenda where Lex was completely in control the entire time. And that's why the Trinity doesn't use Lex to stop Doomsday. That's, uh, question one? Only one? Oh man. <laughs> Okay, but in the meantime, hopefully you learned a little about moon rocks, federal sentencing, and power outages. So even if it took us a lot of time to get there, I hope I gave you a tour of the real world along the way, right? And hopefully you enjoy learning. And speaking of learning, let's get back to the film to see how the filmmakers let Superman learn a lot about Doomsday in an incredibly short time frame, wordlessly visually, in a few densely packed seconds of action. Okay, I'm gonna cut it off right there. I've rambled on long enough. We'll come back to the rest of that recording in another episode. So thanks so much for listening. If you like what you heard, please share the show and subscribe. I'm Doc, signing off. See you next time. Answer, son. They invented a reason, that's why it stings. They don't think you matter because you don't have pretty rings. I keep telling you, I don't care.
Answer, son.